This talk was given at Insight Meditation South Bay. For more information and a schedule of our events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. Actually uh, delighted to have just come off of a month of retreat with Shyla, and she was teaching at the Forest Refuge, and it's really a lovely time to to get uh, such an opportunity for long retreat. I certainly encourage it if you're drawn to it at all. So today's Dharma talk will be a little bit unusual in that it's going to include an experiential exercise in the middle of it. I'll talk a little bit first, um, but then we'll do that. So we, we hear a lot of Dharma terms in these talks, like I give all the time, you know, words like investigation and concentration and even joy, uh, you know, words that we think we might know what they are. But the point isn't really to know the terminology uh, or even to know the structure of the teachings, like know all the lists, although I do encourage that. Uh, the point is actually to experience these things. <laughs> and so to that end, um, we're, going to, uh, we're going to be doing some investigating. But I'll talk a bit first to kind of frame things. And if you were hoping for a quiet evening and you're nervous about those tables in the back, which is where we're going to be doing this, don't worry, it's not an interactive exercise. You're actually still going to get your quiet evening, I promise. <laughs> okay, so... Today, as Jeff said, we are investigating investigation, which is the second factor of awakening. And just for review, the seven factors are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So I hope you'll get a chance to hear about all of those wonderful qualities if you hang around long enough. So the Pali word for this investigation is Dhamma Vichaya. And Dhamma, the first one, is a word that actually has a lot of meanings to it. And, you know, it can mean the teachings of the Buddha. It can mean how nature works in general. In this case, uh, we would say that it refers to phenomena in general. So a Dhamma is something that happens. It's an experience, a phenomenon that we might be aware of. So things happen, and they're called, things that happen are called Dhammas. (laughs) So that's what this refers to. Um, and then uh, vichaya is, is a, the verb part. It's related to the verb uh, vichinity, which is to examine or investigate. So it's in, also translated as investigation of states or investigation of phenomena. So this, however, is not really an, an intellectual investigation. You know, in this part of the world, <laughs> investigation, um, we have so many people who are very into that Uh, way of thinking and and being, it can be easy to imagine that we're going to um, look at something and and think about it or know what it is and cognize it and then, you know, turn it over in our mind in some way. But we'll see in the exercise that it's actually not an intellectual examination particularly. And this is also evident 
which is what I want to talk about in this first segment, from some of the conditions that are said to lead to the arising of this awakening factor. You know, if you wanted to have this awakening factor, what are the conditions that help it to come about? That's a useful thing to know. So there's a whole bunch of them, actually, but I thought I would just pick out a few of them and talk about them tonight, because they're interesting and and useful uh, to know about. So first, it turns out that there is some basic real-world prep to do before uh, we're ready to have investigation come to the mind. In particular, we're instructed to, quote-unquote, purify the basis, which is explained to refer to cleaning our body, clothes, and surroundings. So that's right, if you sweep the floor and change your shirt, you will investigate better. That's what it says. Um, Do you think this is true? I actually think this is true. Um, I noticed, for example, that on retreat, uh, I keep my room scrupulously clean. Not that my house is a horrible mess, but my room on retreat is neater than my house, (laughs) for sure. So like I said, I was just on retreat for the month of January, and when I first arrived, I thought the room looked fine, and it was fine. I mean, yogis that are moving out have just been on retreat. They're very mindful. They clean the room very nicely. They're full of metta and love, and they make it beautiful, and then they go. So my room had been cleaned by whoever was there before, and it was fine. But nonetheless, during the first week, I kept cleaning little spots on the floor and on the mirror and little bits of dust out of the drawer. And, you know, there were just little extra things, mostly almost invisible. And I wasn't being obsessive about it, actually. I was not. I was, um, it just felt good to do it. And while I was there for that month, you know, I I was the only one in my room and it had a a sink in it. but I noticed that I would take the washcloth and wipe around the sink after I was done, just so there weren't little spots of water drying on the counter. You know, it just made it slightly nicer. It, it was a nice little feeling, a nice mindful thing to do. Um, I think it makes a difference. And I, I just I find myself doing it naturally on retreat. So this is also true, of course, here, is that if our um, house is a mess and, you know, there's um, sort of clutter everywhere. This invites clutter in the mind. You can see for yourself if you think this is true. You don't have to believe me. And it doesn't mean you have to go home and like clean your house and tell all your roommates to be different than they are or whatever. But you can make the, at least the space where you meditate um, somewhat neat. And that helps. That helps a lot. So a second factor for the arising of Dhammavichaya is said to be that we should impart evenness to the five faculties. Well, what does that mean? So the five, that means that all five should be present and they should be in balance. And the five faculties, since we're, you know, if you wanted an intellectual investigation, they are faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. And this particular five cluster of five factors is very relevant for developing skills. Um, These are the qualities that um, uh, help the mind become competent at something, if you have all five of those. So it's kind of natural that we would need to have those there and somewhat balanced in order to cultivate an important state like investigation of states. So 
um, it turns out that this means that there's some prep in the mind also. We have to have our mind in a certain balanced, pretty wholesome state in order to be able to investigate correctly. Why is that? Well, because you need to be able to see clearly. And if the mind is horribly unbalanced with a lot of hindrances present or something, it's really not in a position to clearly understand what it's looking at, to clearly see phenomena. So we prepare our physical space, we prepare our mental space in some way. Um, We could generally summarize the five faculties, by the way, as simply saying that the mind is receptive and clear. So if the mind is receptive and clear, then we'll be able to see what we're looking at. And then there are a couple of other factors that actually are intellectual. So, you know, it's not that there's no intellectual component, but it's just not the only part. I don't want to overemphasize it. So, in particular, we are supposed to inquire, it says, about the aggregates and other Dhamma qualities, and also to reflect on the profound processes of these factors in the mind. So what does that mean? You know, that means that we should be, have some awareness that what we're looking at is the field that the Buddha said was the field of awakening, and he defined it in particular ways. You know, we should look at our body, we should look at our feeling tone, we should look at, I'm now naming more like the four satipatthanas, but the aggregates would be the body, the feeling tone, also the perceptions that we see, the various uh, volitions that are in the mind, and the consciousness itself. These are qualities that are interesting to look at, so we should inquire into those and reflect about how profound it is that our experience is really just made up of components of body and mind. You know, we have our individual story, our life, it's all, it's true, all that is true. And when you sit down in meditation, you're really, you're actually just sitting there, right? You're there, you're a body, you're a mind. That other stuff, you're not dealing with at that moment. So there's this present moment, and it's quite profound to see how simple all of our complicated lives are. So this is my interpretation of some of the goes into the reflection. I don't want to go into a lot of details, but there is you know, a certain amount of a cognitive stance of curiosity, which is what I invited in the um, guided meditation, right? Is to just have some curiosity about our experience. Curiosity, respect, and openness. I think these are very useful. I think maybe about a scientist, you know, preparing to observe the profundity of nature. All the scientists I know who have done it for a long time are extremely respectful of what they're looking at, find it almost awe-inspiring. And that quality of, wow, what is this thing that we're looking at? We can do that with our own inner experience. You know, the scientist looks outward, but we look inward. So... There are a few other conditions that are listed, but I think these are sufficient for us tonight. So I want now to go on to this exercise. Um, And let me say a little bit first. We're going to use the tables at the back. Uh, If there aren't enough chairs, feel free to just grab some from the back row and bring them in. The chairs are very light. Um, please stay as silent as you can while getting around the tables just so that we keep our mind, what, in that balanced, receptive state. And also because uh, it's not really intended to be uh, such an interactive exercise. Um, 
I'm going, there are uh, paper and pens available, so just make sure uh, among all of you that everybody has a piece of paper and a pen. Um, there should, there's plenty. And then, while you're getting organized, I'm going to bring an object for you and <clears throat> put it on the table. So, um, we're going to be investigating this object. And I'll, I'll give you instructions on how to do that. So, let's do this first. Let's get around the tables and I'll bring the objects and then I'll give the instructions. Okay, so let's do our prep, right? So please take a moment to set your body at ease. Well, I'm glad this worked. We had just the right number, didn't we? So please take a moment to set your body at ease. This is kind of the equivalent of making the space clean and neat. Don't worry if you just came from the gym and you're not that clean, it's okay. Just have a kind of an inner attitude of ease, bearing, so sit in a position that feels somewhat noble, appropriate for the task of investigating the profound dharma. And you know, set your mind also to whatever degree of ease and balance you can. Uh, see if you can bring up an interested and open attitude. This exercise will probably take eh, maybe 10 to 15 minutes, so it's, and you'll have several things to do. So it's not... Um, super long, and then we'll come back together and, and talk some more. So an interested and open attitude about being with your experience, whatever it is, pleasant or unpleasant. Okay, so now um, look at your object in the middle of the table from your vantage point. We're only going to use the faculty of seeing, so please no um, touching or tasting. Um, <laughs> we're just going to use seeing to keep things simple. And we're going to observe this object in three different modes. And I'll, So just stay with the mode that I give you, and it will change in a few minutes. Okay? So um, it's going to be about three minutes each, maybe. So start by observing the object as what might be called a neutral observer. You're going to write down on your piece of paper things that you notice about this object that somebody else could also see, like, say, color, shape, material, pattern, size, brightness, something that somebody else could also see if they were looking at the object. So properties of the object. So go ahead and start writing at your leisure. And it's not, you don't, you're not going to have to read these out loud or anything. So it's really, it's just for you.
Okay, so um, winding up with the last thing that you're writing. And so now, um, second mode of observation, of investigation. So start a separate list on your paper, just like farther down or whatever. Um, So now, this time, continue to observe, but include your body. So you can write down sensations that are evoked in your body by the process of looking at the object. You might consider how looking at it affects your breath, your eyes, your shoulders, your belly, your legs. Do you feel heat or cold as you observe this object? Tension, changing sensations. Um, You can also keep down writing down other physical features that you see that would have gone in the first list. That's okay. But um, include your body. How is it to be you as that body observing that object? And if things are different now than they were a minute ago, you can write that. Your body does change. Okay, and then winding up that second list. And now we'll go on to the third list. This is a new list. Now include your mind as you observe. In particular, if there are emotions or feelings evoked by either by the act of observation or by the object itself, is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Does that induce like or dislike? Do you have feelings of vulnerability, sadness, joy, interest, anger, boredom? What is beauty? Some of these more mental things. 
Take care that you don't run off into memories and stories, if that looks like something that reminds you of last summer and blah, blah, blah. This is just like meditation. We're staying in the present moment. But what is happening with your mind? You can reorient to the object by, say, looking at its color if you find yourself running off. But see what happens if you include your mind as you're observing. Stay in the present and record your inner mental experience of observing this object. and then allowing yourself to wind up from that. So now stop deliberately observing. Um, You can put your pen down. (laughs) And just notice the space around the object. Notice the object itself if you want, or if you're tired of the object, you can look more at the space. But just kind of see the whole scene in front of you as a piece and just include your inner experience as part of that whole. So we're just resting now in the whole of experience, just letting everything, whatever arises to your senses, you just sit with that like you would in meditation, just sitting receptively to what's there. Allow your awareness to expand if it wants to and just rest.
All right, thank you. You can come back to the main chairs. You can just leave the things there. I'll pick them up later. Or you can, you can bring your sheet. Your sheet is yours. Okay, thank you, first of all. Um, so I'm really curious how that was for you. I'd, I'd welcome some comments about um, how the different segments were different, how it was to rest at the end. What happened for you in, the, in that three different sets? Yes. Very nice. Did everyone hear that, or should I repeat it? Please repeat it. I'll repeat them, because we don't have another mic. So she commented that in the body and the mind segment, she particularly noticed that there was quite a lot of ease, and she attributed this to the fact that there was just one simple task to do, and that that was very simple and easeful. This is a perfect description of, of the task of concentration practice, is that we have a single object that we focus on, um, and it can be incredibly easeful. Now, a lot of people make concentration practice into the most tense thing you can imagine, um, but it's meant to be very easeful because the mind has so little that it has to do. Other experiences? Yeah, Christy. The second one being the body? body. Yeah. And what ha did you find something in your body? It was strange at first, yeah, but yeah. Okay. Uh huh. Great. Yeah, it's not something that we are habituated to doing. Certain many of us aren't. However. Um, what goes on, what comes into the sense doors, actually impacts the whole system. You, you do have a response in your body to the things that you see and hear as you walk around. And it's not that you, know, you need to now say, oh my gosh, I need to do this. Um, but it, it is there. It's, it's available as an object of mindfulness. And I, I would encourage noticing, actually, how the body feels as we walk around, because um, there's a lot of information the body has a lot of good information about that. 
Yes, Jennifer, you sound like, you look like it's going to be related. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. Or to the experience of observing the object, yeah. Uh huh. I didn't really understand the relationship between. I mean, I accepted the fact that I was sitting there, I was looking at the object, and I could. You had ex okay, but you weren't sure there was a causal relationship between them. This is this is an important observation. Um, it's true that I maybe I my language wasn't clear enough. So the act of observing as well as the object, as well as just other conditions affect how your body is. You might be tired, you might be hungry. I'm sure that's not caused by the object, probably. Um, so it's true that we can't... This is a, an excellent case of being careful not to mix up correlation with cause, which is a big problem in our society. Um, but yes, if you look at something and you feel tense, is the tension being caused by the object? Uh, we need to do some observation over time to start to know uh, for our system whether or not there's a link there or not and what it feels like when there's a link and when there isn't, when the cause of whatever we're feeling in the body is something else. This is a very good point. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, but it is possible also to look at an object and to have a feeling of tension or squirminess or something that we don't think is associated with the object particularly. But as we observe over time, like especially when we bring in the mind, we realize, oh, this body, this object is evoking a memory. And that memory is causing a physical sensation that feels unpleasant. This is a huge reason why we dislike certain people when we see them. You have no reason to dislike somebody necessarily, but there's something being triggered likely in your body. And we, if we're not aware of that process, all kinds of stuff happens from it. So it's actually quite important to start looking at some of these other factors that I'm going off on. <laughs> but um, are there other observations? These have all been great, yes. The neutral, the body, and the mind. Yeah, that, that, that obviously requires the mind to be present. If there wasn't an observation there, that the, you know, look, looking back at the mind that requires the mind as well. Um, and, you know, if the body wasn't there doing it, it wouldn't happen. Yes, this is correct. <laughs> what you're, yeah. There's a lot going on there. These are both great points. So to, to the first one, what you've correctly identified is that nama and rupa are not separate. They're not separate, but they are distinct. 
And um, this is an important point in practice, is to distinguish clearly what is mind and what is material. That's actually one of the first insights that we need to have in order to start the process of wisdom. But they're, in the end, they're not separable any more than water is separable from wetness. That's usually the, often an analogy given. How could they be separate? And yet they're distinguishable. Um, so this is an important quality. You've identified something very important in the process of practice. As for the second, is an emotion physical or is it, is it mind or, or body? Um, this points to the fact that the category called emotion is an understanding from Western psychology. And it, is, it spans what in Buddhism is, are identified as separate realms, as the mind and the material. And so um, it's one of the entanglements that we have as Westerners, is that we come in with this blueprint that says, the mind is about emotions, or our inner life is about emotions. And that doesn't map onto how the Buddha divided up that same space. It's just two different ways of cutting the pie. And a lot of confusion happens in Westerners because we have the wrong pie, <laughs> the wrong pie cut. <laughs> or at least, not, not that the one's right or wrong, but we're, we're, we're bringing in one that's not there. And so it's, it's fine. You can call them emotions. The emotions happen to be a mixture of body and mind. As long as you understand that, fine. Um, but, yeah, so that word... Oh, you had a third. Okay, and then there is a hand behind you also. Was that all of all of this? Everything on the paper was all a product of conditioning that I could trace to. Okay, I've seen this before. I recognize this because it's all. Yes, perception requires memory. We have to know what things are. It's all conditioned to see certain things. I didn't ask you guys to compare your lists, but that would have been pretty interesting, huh? Uh, we didn't, we're not, we're not going to quite have time for that, but that would be fun um, to pick out the things that you thought were neutral and everybody could see. Did everybody actually see all those things? Um, anyway, yeah, great. They are all conditioned, what, what we see. There was another hand a little farther back. Yeah. They all seemed the same. Okay, they're certainly related. I think it's a little too broad brush to say that they're all the same now that you've had the experience of going through them. So this kind of segs a little bit into some additional comments I wanted to make. So let me kind of gather things up and say those. And there, if there's additional things that you still have on your mind, it, there'll be a little time at the end, I think. So... Um, the first mode of observation that you were using is something similar to what's done in science. Okay, there's a requirement in science that um, we, we observe things that other people could also observe. It's called third-party verifiable or falsifiable, something like that. It's that somebody else could see that also. If you tell them how to do the experiment, they could repeat the experiment and get your results. So this is, of course pretty clear about physical properties of an object. We can understand that. But a lot of our experience doesn't cover that territory. Um, all of your inner experience is not verifiable by anybody else, but it's a huge part of your life, isn't it? So um, certainly we have to understand the domains here. Um, it's very different. So, so a neutral external investigation, as I would say, a subset of Dhamma investigation, which also includes this inner world that is um, 
you know, not as verifiable. And yet, it's not totally undescribable. The suttas are all about it. And if you read this, which came from a culture across the world 2,600 years ago, you read it and say, my gosh, my experience is just like that. So the Buddha knew that we were similar enough internally that we can convey things about that. We can create a system of language and talk about it. But in reality, nobody feels what you feel. That's, it's an interesting combination. Science rejects all of that and looks only at what is verifiable, which is a good subset, and it's also very good training for the mind to be very clear about what is um, external to itself. So then uh, the second two modes are more like meditative investigation where you have your eyes closed and you're looking at your inner experience. But we don't often have a lot of clarity about what the mind is adding to experience. So if you had differences between the first list and the other two lists, which you did, you had things that were allowed to be on the second two lists that really kind of weren't on the first, uh, these are things that are uh, being incorporated. We're participants in our experience. And it's scrupulous in science that we avoid that. You know, we try very hard not to bring any of that. But uh, in our life, it's absolutely essential that we do and that we recognize that we do because it's going on there. So, um, but we're mixed up about a lot of these things if we haven't done this observation carefully. For example, we're mixed up about what's a property of the object, what's in our body, and what's in our mind. Those are different, actually. Those are distinct. What's in the past, what's in the present, what's projection, what's conditioned. Um, so this exercise, I hope, it was very short, and you know, I hope it maybe helps you start to clarify how it is that you're observing experience. You know, we sit down and the meditation teacher says, close your eyes and observe your inner experience. What do you do? What are you doing? How are you doing that? Um, it can actually get very profound uh, to look at this investigation process. Investigating mind and matter goes very deep and it leads to liberating insight. That's why it's a factor of awakening. It's critical that we are able to observe our inner experience with some degree of clarity, some understanding of what is the body, what is the mind, what could I talk about, what is coming from perception, what is coming from memory, uh, what is uh, f free in this moment and what is not. So um, it's a very interesting question, what and how our mind is creating our experience moment to moment. Um, so I hope you'll be inspired to look more deeply, first of all, at your experience, and secondly, at how you are observing your experience. Um, this is what matures into the awakening factor of investigation when it's done clearly and carefully and in line with uh, the other qualities that, in that are the other factors of awakening. So... As this gets clearer, we have that um, maturing into the kind of clear seeing that, that does lead to awakening. So this is what I wanted to take you through tonight. I hope the experience added something more to this quality of what are we talking about when we're talking about observing or investigating or even being with experience. Sometimes teachers use that as a way to make it a little bit less controlling. 
So all of these words are meant to point to that interaction that we have between the mind meeting something in experience. Was it fun? Okay. <laughs> At least some people had fun. Um, any other comments or questions? Yeah, Lewis. Okay. And people would go down and make sketches and observe, and they would come up and they would sculpt, and then they would go down and observe, <laughs> and then they would come up and they would sculpt. Wow. And how by the end of the session, people would go downstairs and Interesting. So there was a lot of back and forth until, yeah, to kind of absorb the object in and then, hmm, interesting. That tells a lot about how you observe, right? Hmm. Thank you. Was there another comment behind? I thought... Okay. Yeah, it's true. Everything converges on the mind. As, it, as one of the suttas says, where do the senses converge on the mind? For sure, we can't do any of it without the mind, but you can't observe without your eyes, which are in your body. That's correct. There are, seeing has um, multiple components. One is a functioning eye. One is uh, an object to see. The third is light, and the fourth is attention. So mind and body and an external condition of light have to come together for the process of seeing to happen. So we didn't look at that in particular tonight, but it would have been fun to ask you guys to identify what is needed for you to see that object. I, I wonder how many of you would have come up with the f all four. So this is also a very profound area of investigation um, you can do this for each of the senses. You know, what are the requirements for hearing, for example, or for smelling, or for thinking? Um, so it's that's useful. And then, can we differentiate those different components in our experience? Can we notice the attention, for example, as a separate component from the eye itself? Yes. Yeah, Jennifer said this too. Yeah. Uh-huh. To distinguish. 
Right. So one way to, to start to feel into that is to um, avert your eyes or to close your eyes and feel how your body is just at this moment. How tired are you? How hungry? Are you sore anywhere? That kind of general feeling. And then open your eyes and have the object arise you know, that you're looking at as a new component of experience. Anything that changes at that moment, like tension that comes in, is likely due to the object or could be due to the way you're looking. If you, if you open your eyes and look in a very intense way, that itself might cause tension. So this is an area, if you felt like you weren't sure about that, this would be nice to know about your experience, your body and your mind, how they work. Part of what we're doing through practice is learning how to play this body and mind like an instrument. <laughs> and to, to do that, we have to to start looking at those. So this is great that you weren't sure about that and were open because that means there's a, there's something interesting to explore there. Yeah, yeah, Trudy. I had something brief that related to that and that is, well, noticing my breathing while I was just on the object and it had a certain rhythm to it. And for one brief second, I wondered what object was on the other tables. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh huh. Interesting. Right. What do they call that? Fear of missing out. FOMO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Curiosity. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Thank you for sharing that. We're at the end, but we could take. Yeah, please. Did you have a? Right. Oh, that's true. I asked you to write things down. Yeah. Right. I understand. Yeah, not all of our experience is immediately verbal. This is true. And so if there was anything that was too hard to write down, I should have said you could just skip it. Uh, Don't try to force it into it. But thank you for pointing out that dimension because the body actually speaks in its own language. Um, We can put words on it, and it's it's good to to learn to do that to some degree. But um, don't feel that you need to be able to name and describe in words everything that happens in your inner experience. It's much richer than what your verbal mind can know. Thank you for bringing that in. Yeah. Wow. Well, this was really fun. So <laughs> thank you, everyone. Enjoy your investigation since you now have a couple weeks to practice it. <laughs> Be well.